Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Kenneth Jacobson, Deputy National Director of the ADL, Anti-Defamation League. Mr. Jacobson received a BA in History from Yeshiva University and earned an MA in History from Columbia University and uh, also received an honorary doctorate from Yeshiva University. Uh, Mr. Jacobson has been with the ADL since 1971, making him the longest-serving ADL professional. During his tenure at the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, Mr. Jacobson has served in many roles, including leading the international affairs, civil rights, marketing and communications, and education division. And today we will be discussing a very relevant and pertinent topic, the history of anti-Semitism in America and the role of the ADL in combating anti-Semitism in America. Uh, Mr. Jacobson, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Pleasure being with you. Okay. Just generally, um, what was the state of American Jewry in the early 1900s? Well, it was, it was mostly an immigrant population. You know, there were, of course, German Jewish and Sephardic Jews in the, in the earlier 19th century, but the mass of Jews came from Eastern Europe in the last two decades or so of the of the 19th century. And so it was very much an immigrant community, which with all of the challenges of being immigrants, like other immigrants, and of course, specific elements of the Jewish community. I would say there was a general sense of this was a golden of Medina. You know, there was still that sense of it. Uh, and But there were all kinds of insecurities of new immigrants and anti-Jewish stuff that people encountered, which they didn't really necessarily anticipate. Um, so I would say it was, a, it was a growing community. It was a community that overall was pleased that they had the opportunity to be in America, but also one that encountered anti-Semitism and other things that they some of them did not anticipate. So. Right. When was the ADL formed and why was it formed? Yeah, so ADL was founded in 1913. Uh, there's some historical discussions whether it was a, a product of the Leo Frank case. Leo Frank was a New York Jew who went down south to Atlanta, married a southern Jewish girl, worked in his father-in-law's factory, and was accused of murdering a Christian, a Christian girl, uh, was imprisoned, uh, later, there was some effort to parole him or something like that, and he and a group came into the prison and lynched him. It was It's the most famous or infamous lynching of a Jew in American history. Of course, African-Americans, unfortunately, suffered from many of those things. But this is the most famous. So it, 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 the fact that the trial took place in 1913 led a lot of people to associate the founding of ADL. But I think the founder of ADL, who was a Jewish immigrant from Germany, uh, who was a lawyer, uh, he came to America, and uh, as I said about Jews in general, he was on one hand pleased to be in America rather than Germany, but he was quite shocked by the level of anti-Semitic stereotypes that he saw in vaudeville and all kinds of newspapers, all kinds of public images and tropes of Jews that he associated more with Europe, but he was founding here, and he said, you know, I think the Jewish community needs a defense organization 
with the main purpose of fighting anti-Semitism. So he created ADL in 1913 and went to B'nai B'rith, which was in those days a very large social service organization, part of the process of integration and assimilation of Jews to America, and said, would you like to take up the mantle of this idea of the the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, and it was founded in 1913, and that was the beginning of our history. So we are now uh, 110 years old. What was the mandate of the ADL, and has that changed over the years? Yeah, I talk often when I, I give a lot of talks to our staff, to our supporters, and others about the history of ADL. And I said part of our history is partly about continuity and partly about change. And when I, I say continuity in response to your question, the founding charter of ADLs, Livingston came up with the charter, which sort of became ADL's unofficial constitution. And he got 100 leading Jews around the country to sign on to this charter. And the charter said basically two things, one of which I would say was somewhat traditional. The other was for the time fairly radical. The first point and the primary purpose of ADL was to combat the defamation of the Jewish people, which was interpreted and has been interpreted all these years later as fighting anti-Semitism and protecting Jews. The second part of our charter and our mission said, and we're going to work for equal rights for all. And that meant that we were doing something which, as I say, the first part was what different immigrant groups were doing this kind of the NAACP was founded a few years earlier, the American Jewish Committee a few years ago. Minority groups were beginning to assert themselves and stand up for their rights. So in that sense, it was in line with other organizations. What was different was that second part, which said here a minority group, as I mentioned, still in, with plenty of insecurities, was taking as part of its mission to work for equal rights for all. In other words, to go beyond the Jewish community. And that was quite uh, radical for its time. I mean, of course, you know, as we all know, Hillel's famous statements embodied that actually when he said, if I'm not for myself, who will be, which is that you have to stand up for yourself, which is the first part of our mission. And then he said, if I'm only for myself, who am I, uh, you know, that was So there was Jewish tradition for that, but it still was a fairly radical kind of thing. And I would say 110 years later, uh, with all the changes that have gone on, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in the organization, that basic mission remains intact. And we, when we talk, when all of our staffers come on board and others, everybody comes to know that what we refer to often historically as our dual mission, but we don't use that terminology anymore. So that that was it. It was in 1913, and still is today. Okay. As the ADL, um, as history moves on, and we're now in the 1920s, let's say, how did the ADL um, combat Henry Ford and the, and or the KKK? So first of all, in responding to that, after record, we were a very much a fledgling organization in those days. We weren't fully structured. We weren't all across the country as we later came to be. We didn't have all the departments and, and experts. And it's always fairly new. But right after the Leo Frank case, which was the first case that sort of 
gave ADL a name because we said things about it. Uh, then came Henry Ford, as you remember, Henry Ford. I always talk about that the, the period before World War II in the 20s and 30s was characterized by very famous Americans engaging in the most blatant form of anti-Semitism. Henry Ford was a great industrial hero, hero, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, and he gets a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, and he spends all of his time there basically disseminating the infamous protocols of the learned Elza Zion, which basically said that Jews control the world for evil purposes. And here, this was in America, you know, it's one thing for it to be in Russia and Europe, but to have this being disseminated by this American hero was. So ADL was again, somewhat fledgling, so I don't want to overstate, but what we did was we started to produce informational pamphlets, which we distributed to counter the messages that were coming from, from Ford. Now, again, Ford was a famous American ADL was a newish organization, so I'm not about to say that we were able to stop Ford from doing it in the 20s, but we published such things, one thing called the Poison Pen, another one called the Protocols of Spurious Document, in which we showed that what he's citing is all a bunch of conspiracy theories that have nothing to do with the real world. So it began the process of countervailing uh, this most hateful stuff, but it really took, it wasn't until actually 1942 when when World War II became an American war right after Pearl Harbor, that Ford sent a letter of apology to ADL for his anti-Semitism and saying that it had been a disservice to the country. And I assume part of it was we had become a more serious and well-known organization by that time. But of course, part of it is we now were at war with Nazi Germany. And I think he probably felt the pressures to dissociate himself from the terrible things he did. But there was a lasting impact because he disseminated these most vicious ideas about Jews to a public, many of whom had never heard those things. And that, there was a price to be paid for many, many years because of that. And, and the case in, in those years? Okay, really, ADL, I, I'm more than happy to talk about the case because one of the most significant things that ADL ever did involve the KKK, but that actually took place in the early 50s rather than in the 20s. And, and what happened was, of course, in the early 50s, and we'll talk about this as well, but in the early 50s, of course, there were the early signs of the civil rights movement. And in the South, the KKK was revived again. This was like their third or fourth incarnation. They started terrorizing people all over the South. We already had an office in Atlanta, Georgia, and our office there got the legislature to pass a law known as the anti-mask law. And we, because we were very much a civil liberties organization, we believe we part of ADL's mandate for all these years has been to fight hate and hate speech, but hate speech is constitutionally protected in America. The First Amendment protects even the worst kind of speech. So we were not about to say that the legislature should try to pass something to ban the Klan from demonstrating. Well, we got passed, though, which became important in weakening the Klan and in ADL's future work was a bill called the Anti-Mask Law, which said the, can't, the Klan has a right to demonstrate as hateful as they are. But they can't, you know, the famous pictures of the Ku Klux Klan with the sheets over their head and carrying the torches said they can't demonstrate with their faces covered. They have to have their faces open to the public. 
And that did two terribly important things. One, it weakened the Klan dramatically because it took away the aura of intimidation from that. And suddenly they were your next door neighbors. They weren't these all powerful people. So it had a real impact on the Klan. For ADL more significantly, this became the fundamental way that we dealt with issues of hate and extremism for many decades to come, which was not to censor it, but to literally and figuratively expose it to the light of day and then get good people to stand up against hate. So this became not only an important event in combating the Klan, but it became a very important event for how ADL functioned over many decades. You had mentioned, obviously, Ford, 1942, and, and, and the war. Um, American fascism, supporters of Nazi Germany, isolationists, Lindbergh. Uh, what role did the ADL take vis-a-vis -vis those issues? Well, we became a, a central player in the 1930s on this matter, so much so that when Pearl Harbor took place on December 7, 1941, the FBI came to our headquarters in Chicago to ask to look at our files on Nazis in America, because we, since we were not at war with Germany until after Pearl Harbor, they were not allowed to monitor Nazi activity in America, but ADLs, an individual group, could do so. And that became a major priority. As a matter of fact, there's a book that I recommend to people called Hitler in Los Angeles. It came out a few years ago by Stephen Ross. And it's all about the activity to prevent Nazis in California from engaging in violent acts against Jews and others. And most of the activity is by people who either worked for ADL or formerly worked for ADL. So we became like the hallmark of countering fascism and and Nazism in America when it really was. As a matter of fact, I, I live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and that neighborhood was actually the center of the Bund, the Nazi uh, activity in New York City. And ADL folks used to go up there and sometimes debate, sometimes get in fights with Nazis. And uh, it was a real, a real issue, and it became a major priority for ADL before the war and enhanced our reputation for being... Uh, if not the leading organization, one of the leading organizations in exposing and countering extremism. And has that, was that a precedent for cooperation with governmental authorities like the FBI? Did that carry over with other agencies? That is, our relationship with law enforcement is one of our most important things. As a matter of fact, We've had missions of law enforcement people to Israel. We have, we get attacked for that after the whole George Floyd thing and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we've gotten attacked as as Israel has, claiming that all these terrible things by American police are because of learning these things from Israel and ADL played a role. So we we hear this kind of stuff. But the truth is, we we our relationship with law enforcement is particularly important because there are many times where we actually help to prevent some violence act from by providing information to law enforcement. And they turn to us because we have, as I said, we have all these experts at our center in extremism who, who monitor extremist activity. So yes, uh, this, this became a hallmark of the work of ADL uh, from the 1930s and has continued to this day. Our center in extremism has now become a very, very large part of the work of ADL. And in the 
America witnesses um, the rise of what eventually be, becomes called McCarthyism and the hunt for communists and obviously Hollywood and Jews playing a role in all that. I don't need to be stereotypical, but what, what was the ADL's role in... in um, so it, it, at the beginning, it was very complicated for us. There were a lot of Jewish things, and uh, you know, and of course, the Russia, the Soviet Union was was torturing the Jews under Stalin. So there was a little bit of a hesitation, but we quickly the the big moment. It was actually a moment in American history. Uh, we by that time had become serious enough that presidents of the United States would come to speak at a dinner of ADL. And Dwight Eisenhower, then president in 1953, spoke to an ADL dinner in which the first time he criticized McCarthy. He had been silent for a year or two, and he didn't actually use the name, but he said everything he said, everybody interpreted, which is what he intended, that for the first time, the president of the United States was was criticizing uh, McCarthy in front of ADL, and we, the, after that, really became much more outspoken on the issue. Uh, we were a little slow off the mark, I would say, on the matter. But as time went on, we really recognized that uh, this kind of uh, generalizations about people without having the facts was a, a very unhealthy for democracy and, was, and also was not good for Jews. So, yeah. You had mentioned... Obviously, the KKK and resurgence during the years of civil rights. How has the ADL worked with African American groups in the civil rights movement over the years? Yeah, the, the we had already in the late '40s started to do certain things. We, for example, our Florida office in the Deep South held only integrated events in this in the at a time when those things were not acceptable for society. Uh, and we, we started doing it. But the big moment for ADL was the decision by our national leadership, known as our National Commission, on the question of whether we should file an amicus brief in what became the most famous uh, Supreme Court decision of the 20th century, Brown versus Board of Education, which which turned out to be a unanimous decision by the court overturning the infamous uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which legitimized and legalized segregation in schools. ADL had a major debate. It was a fascinating debate. I always refer to it because one of our B'nai members from Mobile, Alabama, got up in the middle of the debate and said, if ADL does this, there's going to be Jewish blood flowing on the streets of Mobile, meaning that Jews in the South felt very vulnerable because when they hear a Jewish organization is standing up for civil rights. But fortunately, our leadership overwhelmingly voted to enter the case, and they did it both on moral grounds. It was the Jewish thing to do. Segregation was un-Jewish. And on practical grounds, the belief that this kind of a case and the civil rights movement generally would be beneficial to Jews. And that set the stage. ADL was present You'd come to our national office, you'd see a picture of our then director, Ben Epstein, standing next to Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Lyndon Johnson when they were discussing the Voting Rights Act. And we were there at Selma. We were there at the March of Washington. We, we were just involved at every level. We obviously were not the leaders. It was led by African-Americans. But 
we were very much a part of the broader movement in which Jews played a significant role in the civil rights thing. And, and this really was the realization uh, of that thing I talked about in the char original charter, which is that we not only would work to protect Jews, but to work for equal rights for all. So that, that became our history over the next 20 years of involvement. There are, there are those who might contend that the relationships between the Jewish community and the African-American community have suffered over the years. and It's not what it used to be. Do you agree with that? And how has the ADL helped and continues to help in building those bridges? Yeah, I mean, look, everything has gotten so much more complicated. In those days of the civil rights movement, pardon the expression, things were really black and white meaning these were pure moral issues. What, what had gone on in America, obviously slavery, but even after slavery, Jim Crow, these were evil things, and, and Jews had no hesitation to join in, and, and African-Americans welcomed allies in the struggle for civil rights. After, but Jews, were in many cases, were leaders of some of the civil rights groups, and many of the Africans wanted to seize control of their own destiny kind of thing, and then there were issues of affirmative action that came into play. Jews had opposed quotas because it had always harmed Jews. Now everyone was talking about affirmative action for African Americans. So there were a lot of complicated issues. And what I say is we continue to work for, we look for opportunities to work with African Americans. Um, you know, clearly when there are some terrible things that go on, uh, we're, we're out there. But the, so I would say it's not nearly as bad as some people suggest it is, but it isn't what it was back in the 50s and 60s. I don't think it really could be what it was because we have different priorities, each community different. But but there still is plenty of working together. And there are also challenges. I mean, Louis Farrakhan is a real challenge, not because ADL has described him as a leading anti-Semite in America, but because he gets respectability from too many responsible Black leaders, which is which sends a bad signal, uh, you know, giving legitimacy to a, a Jew hater. So there are real issues, but there's also a lot of work that goes in together in the two communities. Does the ADL have stance and policy vis-a-vis -vis the state of Israel? And if so, what is that? And how does that play in the activities? Of well, we're, we're very easy. Very easy to start off that. We're a Zionist organization. We're proud of it. So it's not a I mean, you know, back, of course, the whole, all the issues of where the Jewish community was back in the 30s and 40s, that's a complicated subject. But once Israel came into being, there was no hesitancy. We have an office in Jerusalem for, for decades. Uh, I spent so much of my time standing up for Israel in all kinds of forums and all writing. I still write. I'm, I'm a regular contributor to Times of Israel on all these articles. You can look them up. <laughs> And uh, we are clearly a Zionist organization. Uh, we've always believed that the American Jewish community has a unique role to play because of the fact that American Jewish life has become so strong over the last 50 years. And that meant, especially when we compare what wasn't done for the Jews of Europe in the, in the 30s and 40s, there was always a sense we had a responsibility to stand up for Jews abroad and particularly for Israel. And we took that responsibility very seriously. I could talk about some of the specifics, 
But uh, in general, you ask the question where we are in Israel, the answer is we think Israel is the greatest blessing for the Jewish people in the last century. And uh, we want to make sure it's healthy. I'm not going to get into current political things that get much more complicated. No, no. That maybe for another conversation. But but uh, clearly, this is where we are. And when you ask a general question of where we are in Israel, we're a Zionist organization. Um, very broadly, as you look back on all the years, what would you say have been the ADL's greatest successes and perhaps the not-so-successes? Well, I would say the biggest non-success or failure wasn't really, and it was, it's related to a question you asked me earlier about the 1930s, but it, it really relates to how the organization was founded and what our mandate was. We were founded, as I said, by B'nai B'rith. B'nai B'rith was an international organization even though they weren't involved in the issues we were. But they basically said to the ADL founders, you stick to America and you don't have a responsibility for the world. So when there were books written about the role of American Jewry during the Holocaust, they're usually not very complimentary to American Jews. If American Jews didn't rise to the occasion when the horrors were taking place. There, is, there isn't a lot of criticism of ADL, but that's not a compliment. It's just that nobody thought of ADL as an international organization in those days. So the, the fact that we were not, an inter, to my view, was the biggest failure, even though we didn't have a choice in those days. We were instructed to. But if I have any regrets, it's I wish we had been that kind of an organization that would have really stood up for the Jews of Europe in their most perilous moment. We did learn the lesson because right after the war, our leadership said, if we're going to be the most serious organization fighting anti-Semitism after the murder of six million Jews and then the founding of the state of Israel, we have to adopt an international agenda uh, that we haven't had. And, and we said we opened up a European department, a, a, a Latin America, a Middle East department, a, a, an office of Jews and international. As I said, I was head of international radio for many years. So Amer there's no doubt that uh, American issues of hate and anti-Semitism are our number one priority. But we became extremely engaged on the international scene because we said if we're going to be serious about protecting Jews, you can't ignore uh, what happens to Israel, what happened to Soviet Jewry, and all those issues that we became very involved in. How has, uh, I believe, social media, has it changed the anti-Semitic landscape, and how has the ADL... Yeah, I, yeah. by the way, I, I realize I didn't answer the positive side of your question. Okay. Oh. Successes. And there are quite a few, but I, I would just list a, a few very quickly without going into details, but I'm sure we don't have time. But our leadership, while well, we were the main organization that got passed two pieces of legislation in the 1970s, which made it illegal for American companies to participate in the Arab boycott of Israel. And th that to this day has is on the books and really basically negated much of the Arab boycott. So that was that was huge. We we became the major organization in the 1980s and 90s uh, developing what came to be known as hate crime legislation, which basically said, you know, we deal with hate all the time, but if there's a hate a crime 
There'll be special penalties. The Supreme Court upheld it because we made a distinction between hate speech and hate action, again, again, protecting the First Amendment. So the whole area of hate crimes has been a huge thing. And I would just add, I mean, obviously, there were a lot of things I could talk about, but I would just add two other programs, one which I participated in for over 20 years, which is one of the more untold stories and a more positive story of the Jewish community and the is the relationship with the Catholic world, which historically was so terrible. But after Vatican II, Catholic-Jewish relations took on a whole different thing. And we developed a program for Catholic school teachers called Bearing Witness, in which we trained over 2,500 teachers over 20 years who went back to their schools and taught their kids completely different things about Jews and Judaism that Catholics had been hearing for centuries. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And the last one I talk about, and I think you started to ask me about social media. Yes. Uh, we had a program. All right. So do you, let's talk about social media. So you want to ask me about that? Yeah. Uh, just again, has social media changed the anti-Semitic landscape? And, and how has the ADL dealt with it? Yeah. It's bec- it, it, the answer is yes. And and we it's become a huge priority for radio. We now have a large staff in Silicon Valley who are constantly in touch with uh, Facebook, you know, Twitter, all the rest, Google, uh, uh, trying to get them more serious on the issue of hate on the internet. Because, again, remember I said earlier that the fundamental way we, we early on learned to fight hate was to expose the haters to the light of day and not try to ban them. But on the social, in the world of social media, that's a much more complicated situation because you had, in the old days before the computer, you had ways to control the situation and to get to people who had been exposed to hate. Today, you can't really get to anybody. And so the notion that you can counter bad speech with good speech isn't really that realistic. And so we we took we've taken some different approaches, including we actually organized um, a, a thing called a year ago on Facebook. We were so upset because we kept on negotiating with Facebook, hoping they would take hate more seriously. And we finally got so frustrated, we created a a, a one month program called No No uh, No Hate for Profit. No, uh, no, no profit for hate. I forget exactly what we called it, and uh, we thought it wouldn't attract. It attracted over a thousand organizations and companies that basically boycotted Facebook for one month, no advertising on Facebook, as a way to pressure them to start taking hate more seriously. So the answer is, this is a major priority for us. Yes, it's become. It has played into anti-Semitism and other forms of hate for several reasons. One, there's anonymity in so much of the internet. Secondly, the haters are able to get to people in a way that, you know, in the old days, the extremists would put a a, a hateful book with a, in a brown envelope and slip it under your door. Today, you're in the same spot where the newspapers are. You know, you have access to people and ability to... And and of course, you get the worst kind of stuff there. So it's it's a continuum challenge. I don't want to make it seem like there are easy answers to it. 
But clearly we believe and, and argue with the companies that they need to do more, at least take their own rules of the road more seriously. But it is no doubt if we talk about, you know, why are we having this splurge of anti-Semitism in recent years? There are a number of factors and social media is definitely one of them. It's not the only one and I can talk about that, but, uh, but uh, it is definitely one of them that's made anti-Semitism more acceptable, if you will. What are the other? Has there been, you know, recent rise? Uh, recent. Well, I, 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 I was, what, what are what are the different factors involved, and what is why is there still anti-Semitism after all these years? Uh, well, look, there's always anti-Semitism. Uh, it's interesting because many of our own. No, I, I ask it because it, it, is it is it not important to understand the roots in order to understand? Oh, of course, it is. It's a very important. I talk right. about it all the time. Right. No, I, I was about to say that uh, until about six or seven years ago, even many of our most loyal supporters would say to me, "Hey, what are you worried about anti-Semitism? It's no longer a problem, particularly in America, you know." And I would say, "Look, thank God we've made tremendous progress." I think we played a role in that progress. We should be, but I said, don't. I would say, don't be complacent. And then I would get into the point you asked about: why is it that it may come back, which it has? And I think, I think, anti-Semitism shares characteristics with other forms of hatred, but it has the unique element of the idea that the Jew is not, for the anti-Semite, the Jew is not something that he or she appears to be. The reality of the Jew is something hidden, something all-powerful, something evil. And once you you see that, you look at the Jews that way, then it opens up a Pandora's box of blaming Jews for everything under the sun, even in contradictory fashion. Sometimes they accuse us of communism, sometimes of capitalists. There's the infamous anti-Semitism without Jews in places where there are no Jews, they blame it on the Jews. The fact is that this fundamental and where that comes from, it probably starts with the whole Christian stuff back 2000 years ago, but it really developed in the Middle Ages, this idea of blaming the Jews for everything. You know, the, the Black Plague, the Jews were accused of poisoning the well, you know, the, the using the blood, well, all of that stuff was the idea that reality is not what it appears to be when it comes to the Jew. And that means you can conjure up anything you like, especially, and my favorite word for modern anti-Semitism is anxiety. When there's social, political, or economic anxiety taking over in a society, you can be sure that anti-Semitism could emerge. And that's basically what happened in the last 10 years where partly related to the internet, partly related to political leadership or the lack thereof. Uh, and also one of my favorite subjects, if you will, to talk about is the loss of shame about anti-Semitism as we get further and further away from the Holocaust. You know, the first uh, 50 years or so after the Holocaust, anti-Semitism didn't disappear, but people were reluctant to act it out because of the shame of what they saw in Auschwitz and all. Well, now so many people, it's like ancient history. And so that also is an element. So you have a bunch of things, the, the nature of anti-Semitism, social media, political leadership, uh, the loss of shame. You have it all coming together in what I refer to as a perfect storm. And so it's, it's 
sad, and but shouldn't be shocked. By the kind. And the answer is why anti-Semitism, you could never say anti-Semitism will never come back because it just suits too many purposes that have nothing to do with Jews. And anytime political leaders, cultural leaders, others feel a need to find something that they could rally numbers of people around to blame for all their problems. You know, look at COVID. I mean, during COVID, there were so many efforts to blame Israel, to blame Jews for that kind of thing. So unfortunately, it's going to be, but I don't want to suggest that uh, until the last few years, we had made tremendous progress. I like often describe the period starting from the late 60s until about 2010, as the most comfortable period for Jews, not only in the world today, but I would argue in the history of the diaspora. I'm talking about Jews in America. That Jewish life in America became normalized almost in a way that was unheard of anywhere else. And even here now we're seeing that, I, I find myself very often trying to calm down some of our supporters because I feel sometimes people get a little hysterical about it. I mean, I'm glad they're paying attention to it. But, uh, you know, I also want to keep things in perspective. America is still a great place for Jews, but we'll see what the future brings. Well, what, what does the future look like for the ADL as you see it in terms of, it, 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 you know, I think we've got a, a sense here of wide variety of programs, whether it's educational, whether it's legislative, political, advocacy, and really encompassing mm -hmm. so much. Where do you see the direction of the ADL going in the upcoming years? Yeah, I would say that uh, one of the areas where we've really built up is uh, data gathering. We have so many experts now who look at many different aspects of manifestations of anti-Semitism, whether it's online, whether it's social media. We, do, we did in 2014, we did the largest poll ever conducted of attitudes towards Jews around the world. I called it a global anti-Semitism. We, we did 101 countries, and we interviewed over 50,000 people. Uh, and we're doing a follow-up one right now as we speak. <clears throat> and, we, and we're doing much with online stuff. We're doing things with gaming and all kinds of things. So I would say the first is, is, is um, the database. We want to be we want to have factual information in order to make the case when we do make the case. Uh, the other key thing, and I'm always arguing that, is uh, nonpartisanship. You know, you, you try very hard to avoid, um, avoid falling into the partisan traps. I always say when people ask me, how do you know when a politician or religious leader is serious about anti-Semitism? I always say, I want to know, are they ready to stand up when it comes from their own community, from their own ideology, from their own political side? It's easy for left-wingers to blame all the white supremacists for anti-Semitism, for right-wingers to blame all the progressives or whatever. But are you ready to stand up when it comes within your own community? When that happens, I, I feel reassured. And I, so I think, I think trying to create some sense of nonpartisanship which is very difficult these days, I understand it. I mean, I, I've seen ADL attack from the right and the left for decades, but it's much worse now than it had been, and partly because the center is much weaker than it has been for a long time, which is very unhealthy for the democracy. 
uh, and very unhealthy for Jews. So, look, the truth is, I'll give you a brief story. I was at Carnegie Hall two weeks ago, three weeks ago, for an evening uh, of uh, Songs of the Holocaust. And it was, a, it was a very moving evening. It was about three hours of a concert of different songs that were written by people who either survived or didn't survive. And each, each song was introduced by either the head of an organization or museum or a celebrity. And, I, and toward, there were 3,000 people at Carnegie Hall. This was not an ADL crowd. And when the ADL representative who wasn't well known, introduced the song and he said, I'm towards the end of the evening, he said, and I'm the regional director of ADL in New York. He got the loudest applause of anything the whole night. And I've never seen that. And I'm not trying to say that always happens because it doesn't always happen. And I'm just convinced that people believe that anti-Semitism is a huge problem now for the Jewish community. And they look to ADL more than any other organization to deal with the issue. So answer is, we will continue to fight anti-Semitism, and we don't have to convince our supporters that it's an important fight. We will be there for Israel, though I must say that during this time, what it means to be for Israel is changing as we speak. And, uh, and of course, we will also work for border uh, equality and uh, civil rights. Well, this has been fascinating. I think we got a little bit of a taste and, and urge all our viewers and listeners uh, to go online and read more of Mr. Jacobson's, Kenneth Jacobson's articles that are printed online and read the material that comes out from the Anti-Defamation League. And again, um, thank you very much for this interview and for all your efforts over the years. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Ernie.